Everyone, welcome to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of NYC each and every week. As you know, we do it right here. Try to do one better, one greater than the other. And it's really hard because each person that comes on True House Stories has a huge story. And every one of the guests that we've had are giants in our field. And this man is no small potato. He is a legend of legends. He comes and hails from Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn, New York. You know, Lenny's Pizza. John Travolta strolled down 86th Street. He knows all the moves. He even went to the paint store where, where John bought that paint in the movie. He went to all those discos that were going on during that time. And he was around the 80s and he was doing his thing. And we want to, you know, he's going to tell you all about it. He's fresh. He's worked with some of the greats, Arthur Baker. I mean, the list goes on and on. He was the baddest mofo I knew with a razor and a grease pen. The boy was bad. He used to take that reel, chop, cut, chop, move the tape. He was awesome at cutting and editing when editing tape was not only fashionable, but it was the only way to get work done. Now it's a fashionable thing. You got a tape machine, sounds fashionable. Wow, I got a tape machine. But back in those days, he you go, you would see him, he come out with tape all over him. <laughs> you know, tape. I'm really busy right now. What do you need? I got, you know, phones are ringing. He's got it all in the control. He used to work, used to rock shake down. And he went from there. He worked with Tommy Musto and another great Tommy Musto and the Brooklyn crew, Lenny D, Frankie Bones. We want to welcome to True House Stories. Brooklyn's own, the Italian stallion, Victor Simonelli. <sighs> Great to be with you, Len. Welcome, Vic. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, brother. First, before we start to the first questions, everybody knows, how are you holding up, bro? How are you doing? All right. I mean, you know, it's, we're dealing with this pandemic. So, I mean, everything, everything has changed since then. If we think about it, it's um, pretty much this week, a year ago, at least here in, in the States, that it, uh, that it all started to shut down. And then, um, wow, from there, everything changed. I mean, this, this week, a year ago, I was ready to go over to, to I was going to leave for Paris. I had, I had just arrived from the West Coast. I did a gig in Portland. The last, gig, the last DJ gig I had was in Portland uh, about four days ago, a year ago. Holy smoke. Yeah, and I, I had just, and that's you know, just because it's everything shut down. So this time a year ago, I was, I was, I was about to leave for Paris, and long story short, you know, just um, everything shut down, and pandemic just shut it all down. I've, look, I had, I was booked to have one of the fullest years I've ever had DJ gig wise last year, but the pandemic changed it all. I was supposed to be in Paris, London, the Philippines, Hong Kong, Korea. Uh, well, Spain, I, I've had so many gigs booked. And, you know, forget, I, think about this, Len. I've made, believe it or not, I've made the Winter Music Conference in Miami every year since 1988, except for one year that I had some, uh, I had some family uh, stuff to deal with. But other than that one year, I made it every year to Winter Music Conference, and last year hit, and that, that just killed it. Um, but with that said, you know, we can, um, there's plenty of other things that can be done and to, you know, for us to keep busy. Sure. As you know, you created this show. I think you did a great thing. 
it's it's important for us to reinvent and um uh it's given me time to get into productions and um do a lot of you know uploading a back catalog um so it's given me a lot of time to focus more on music and music making yeah and that's important that's yeah it. and also you know as many guys i have worked with on these 30 you know, we're at 35 episodes some special sundays and stuff the one thing I've heard everyone say, this has slowed everybody down to reflect on family. Good point. Very good everybody point. Everybody has said the same thing to me. Like, I, like they've had time to really work out where their lives are. Totally. And absolutely. It's actually, it, yeah, you're right. There's been some good quality family time. And um, it's probably the most time I've spent with family in since I started. Yeah, numero uno. Tell them in Italian and tell them in English. Go ahead. Tell them. Because you know what? My my boy, Vic, man, I give him a lot of credit. But we're going to get into the first question. Yeah. He's an American-born Italian guy. From Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Born in Brooklyn. He doesn't get any more than that. What I'm talking about, like, funhouse-driven. He would have a Cadillac. The whole deal. This is, this is Italian-American as it gets. And he learned Italian like a true Italian boy. He speaks it so fluent. So incredible. I love it. Well, Vic, no more. No more. Yeah. No more. La familia numero uno, huh? Tell everybody. Numero uno. Certo, numero uno. See. Si. Potremmo okay. fare le interviste in italiano, se vuoi. There you go. See what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, li I lived over there a good while then, so. We'll get into that. We're going to get into that. Okay, so everyone's waiting to hear me ask that first wonderful question. How does music find a young Young, the young guy, you know, young kid before you going out. Like, when is the first time you discover music or music discovers Victor? Sure, sure. That's a good question. Um, yeah, so basically, look, I'm born into a house where it's full of records because my dad, he's a collector. So um, my earliest memories are digging through his collection. And, um, oh, boy, he had all, all kinds of music. He still does. He has a very large collection of all kinds of music. So, um when I would, when I would dig through his collection, he, you know, he let me pull out records, and it was they were very colorful and um, they're very memorable back then. You know, seventies, early seventies, the, the album covers were very um, entertaining, almost. For, you know, for someone young, not even mentioning the music, but you know, they draw your interest to them. So I would, I would pull them out and, and ask him to play them, and he would do that. He'd select some too. You know, he'd show me what he liked and what he was feeling that day. And we wouldn't only listen, but we'd talk about it. And um, it was really my starting point of, of, of not only listening, but just dissecting music and really getting into it deeply, having an experience with music, not just listening to it. And, you know, we'd listen to a tune and he'd ask me how it made me felt, feel. He, he asked me how it made me feel. He asked me um, if I heard the lyrics, what does it mean to me? What thoughts it brings to mind if, um, if I could describe uh, what instruments I was hearing. So he'd really, from a very young age, get me listening deeply to music. And you know, many times he would act it out as if it, if, it, if it was being performed by him. You know, in other words, like he was the performer of it. So it was really entertaining for me, and it made me get deeply into the music and listen deeply. And, um, wow, one day while looking through his collection, because I said, you know, these album covers were very colorful and entertaining. I came across one that was the opposite. It was very simple then. And it was uh, um, 
It was Dance and Shake Your Tambourine by the Universal Robot Band. And it was a very plain looking record. It was just a, a sort of a light blue label with a red sleeve. And it just said Universal Robot Brand and very simple print with the production information, writer information. And it got me real curious. And we listened to that. And <laughs> well, it just, <laughs> every time I talk about it, it takes me right back there listening to it for the first time. And um, I just found it really amazing that one song was on one side, a full side of a record. And that was my first exposure to a 12-inch single. Um, I just found that really amazing of, of, of one record. And it just, it was so simple looking. But then that, that really sparked my interest in, in the whole 12-inch um, side of things. And yeah, and that side of things. And um, well... I'm, I'm, I'm sort of giving it to you chronologically. So shortly after that, probably. I'm going to ask you this before. Yeah. Did, yeah. You're saying your father being the band conductor, you like being a conductor. Yeah. Did that make you bond even more with your dad because of the music like that? Definitely. Absolutely. I mean, music, it says things that words can't, you know, music says things that words can't. And it's a way of communicating without speaking. Um, instrumental or, um, something with vocals. You know, I'm not speaking about necessarily the lyrics in the song. I'm just talking about the feelings it expresses and the connection that you make with the person playing it. So absolutely, the answer is yes to your question. Um, and I mean, how many friends have I got to know better through the music they listen to and play and share with me? I just you really get to know a person on a more deeper level than just having a conversation with them right. when music is involved, you know? And so, yes, Definitely, um, definitely, my, um, my dad and I um, had that connection, the, mu the music connection there. And thanks to him, I had the introduction to music. Now, during that time, they sent me um, for piano lessons. And then eventually, oh, wow, I took even vocal lessons. I took guitar. Um, later on, I took drums. So I've taken all types of instrument, in instruments. I've taken all types of lessons, but I'm jumping ahead a bit. Um, my dad started to do some um, events just for young people, and he'd rent a dance hall, and um, you know, people just for, for, for younger people, like like a teen disco, I guess, right? And from there is when I really saw firsthand a DJ on the decks because again, this wasn't his business; he was just doing it for the love of it, and because he loved music, he loves music too. And um, simultaneously, I started to hear New York radio. New York radio was great at that time. You know that. Yeah. You know, so yeah, well, yeah. Times, many times I've spoken about this with you. Definitely, definitely. You know, we have. Y'all let you paint that picture. I'm not going to say it. You will. You'll sure. Tell us, tell us from your eyes and your ears what that was like. New York radio. Yeah. Look, New York radio at the time was it was just sort of a megaphone for clubs across the city. In other words, it's like what it, it is. Whatever the clubs was, were playing was being broadcast on New York radio at that time. So you could be at home and be listening to what was being played in all the best clubs. And why is that? Because the program of directors, the program directors were spending so much time at the clubs. For instance, Frankie Crocker, you know, you, you, you've shared that. He was, he was spending so much time at the garage and, and, well, so many clubs in New York. He'd hear what was happening, and then he'd bring it to BLS. And the same thing down at, K, at KTU, 92 KTU at the time. Um, who was it? It was, um, oh, I'm trying to think of that program director's name. Carlos? 
No, before Carlos. Before the, later Carlos. Absolutely, Carlos. But Carlos before Carlos. Yes, there was Carlos in the end in, towards 7980, and then it was the guy right before Jeff something. I'm trying to think of his name. Then. It, anyway, he would spend time in the clubs, and it'll come to me. The name will come to me. But he And Carlos, too. I mean, Carlos eventually even had that New York Hot Tracks, which is the only way in New York City we could watch videos at that time, if you remember, for the most part, without cable TV anyway. But um, New York radio really exposed people that weren't going to clubs to club life and club music because um, they were broadcasting exactly what was being played in the clubs. It's not it's not radio dictating what was what was played in clubs at the time. It was clubs dictating what was played on radio at the time, you know. And I got into a billboard. I followed billboard charts and billboard playlists of radio stations. And I really got deeply into following what was being played on um, on New York radio, especially these mix shows. And then, you know, around that time, my dad worked for the government. We moved away. We moved out west. So it was like uprooting a tree that was getting its roots deep and taking it to a place that was foreign, you know, and that's how I felt. I felt really out of place. But it's through that experience that it really solidified my love for music because there was no internet at the time. And, um, you know, the only way I could get music that I wanted was uh, from friends sending me tapes and, um, you know, or buying records. And, you know, while we were living out West, I would come back to New York. I had, you know, other than my mom, dad, my sister and I, all the rest of my family was back here in New York and New Jersey. So I'd come back as much as I could and I'd always record. I'd go out to clubs and, um, you know, I just, I'd, I'd get in as much as possible, in other words. But that not having it, that's a big part of why my love for music became oh, so strong. So, and out west, what was it like out there? Where were you? Were you in the, with horses and cattle? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Out west, you heard of the state of Utah, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, don't know if, I don't know if people out, out of the country have, but I'm not most likely. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's out, it's out near Nevada. In the west, it's got all those red mountains. It's the dry. Okay. Yeah, well, scen scenery-wise, it's beautiful. Of course. But, but musically, at the time, um, it, you know, it, it wasn't what I was used to, you know, coming from New York. And while, while I was out there, my mom's a teacher. She taught for a place called Job Corps. So there was a lot of people from inner cities that I got uh, friendly with and we'd exchange music. So that was that felt like home away from home for a minute. Um, but then, you know, uh, shortly after graduating from high school, it was like being away at boarding school, in other words, is what it felt like. You must have been sick to your stomach, leaving the whole Mecca of being in Disco City. Yeah. From that culture shock to happy trails to <laughs> you. <laughs> it did a few things for me, you know, besides besides making it making it difficult to get the music and, and which made me want to get the music even more. It also set me up for, well, I didn't know it. This happened unknowingly. You know, I was in a place I wasn't familiar with. So it really set me up for the future travel because, you know, later in life, how many places would I go that I wasn't familiar with? So I sort of got a good head start with being in places I were, I wasn't familiar with from an early age, in other words, you know? Um, so anyway, you know, when, when I, when I was back in New York, um, I would. What you mentioned what year would you say when you when you came back? Uh, well, I was coming back all summers and Christmases and holidays um, for for other family members, but I came back full time to live uh, in 1986. Okay, 
1986. Yeah, I came and I went to Center for Media Arts. Oh, wow. Good for yeah, you. I went, yeah, I went to Center for Media Arts. And um, yeah, during that early 80 period, uh, when I would come back, we'd go to all the clubs that, you know, were happening at the time. And um, let me just get some water. Hold on. Sorry. Um, you mentioned this. Yeah, you mentioned this before we started. So just think, just think about this for a minute of how of how uh, vast the scene was in in New York for this to even be possible. So this is on my this is on my grandparents' block. Okay, on their block, on their corner. If you well, you go down. It's it's the same block that they lived on, but a few a few blocks down. You know how blocks go for several. You know you'd be between. You know what I'm saying. So you go down the block. And the club was Plaza Suite. So, you know, Plaza Suite is on their block and... On the corner, everybody. Imagine. On the corner. On the corner. Six the corner. houses, eight houses up on the corner. Is <laughs> that right. hot spot called Plaza Suite. Go ahead. Right, and Plaza Suite. And, you know, just think, they've had artists like Diana Ross. They've had Jimmy Bohorn. They would have uh, uh, Sylvester. Um and and artists after artists after artists, and that was one of so many in in the neighborhood. That yeah. was one of so many clubs in the neighborhood. You mentioned one before with uh, Danny Pucciarelli. Um, gallery, night gallery. I think that was Romeo and Juliet before, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. But these are only a couple. There were clubs all over the neighborhood, and you you know you were joking about Saturday Night Fever before, and so many people uh, in the scene today will will look at it as. Well, that just took it to a commercial level and, um, you know, it sort of went downhill from there. But the other side of the coin is we have to remember, it was a movie being made about real life, real people in a real neighborhood. So, you know, it is depicting how it really was in an area. The cause that, you know, what happened after that to people who were watching it is one thing, but people in the area who it was depicting, you know, there's that side of it too. Right. So you know, it, it was it was a very lively scene in in Brooklyn um, at that time, and there was so many clubs to pick and choose from. And like you said, you know, people would would get real dressed up, and um, it, it was you know, it was a, a night out was 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 a big thing, big time. Yeah, and couple dancing. I've seen you dance, man. You're an awesome dancer. <laughs> an awesome dancer. You haven't talked about that, but you know, couple dancing. You got you, what you got to do on your show. Sometime you got to get your wife with you and do the hustle. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I love hustling. I know you do, and you're great at it. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, you are. You are. But I mean, it's it's a it's um that's really the, everyone was doing that back then. It might sound you know funny now, but it's the truth. But which hustle did you do? No, I'm not much. I'm not much of a hustler, but I can tell you, you know, in the early eighties, I got into breaking. Wait, 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 hang on. But tell people how important it was to dance and know how to dance. Because if you didn't DJ and you went in the club, what did you do? That's a great point. Dance, right? Dance. And why? Why did you dance? Well, love for music. The, the, the music, and also, most importantly, who was on the dance floor? Girls. That's right. And if you knew how to dance. Right, you get a girl and dance. Sure, 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 sure. No, good point. No, absolutely. But you know, you talk about Danny Cole up on that corner. That was the resident DJ for. Uh, it was. And it was. those that know, Sam and the Bull Gravano owned that club. Who was John Gotti's right hand man? That was his well, spot. 
Well, Dan, well, actually, Danny could tell that story of how that happened. Unfortunately, he's, still alive. he's no longer with us either. I know he passed away. God rest his soul. Great guy, nice guy, really nice guy, down to earth. Okay. And but Johnny D knows him really well because Johnny used to go there. Johnny DeMario from Henry Street used to always go and, and hang out with Danny and play with Danny there. Yeah, sure, sure. And anyway, I mean, I started to go into the city too. I mean, you know, you talk about the garage a lot. Yeah, that's one. Uh, there's the fun house. There's where you played too, was the underground. What about the loft? I mean, Dave Mancuso's loft. That was just awesome. I was a regular at the loft. And and then out in Jersey with Zanzibar, that, you know, these are awesome, awesome clubs. And, you know, others, Danceteria, what about Mark Kamen's? Um, there was uh, the Roxy, which was once a roller rink, and Angel loved that. We were talking about Angel. That's a, what place we went together, Angel and I. And that became 1018 uh, eventually. But, you know, we could talk all day about how many clubs there were in New York at the time. I mean, it was difficult to choose where to go to, to be honest, for me anyway. Right. So in those days, you, okay, so you, you said you took some piano, some singing. So you yeah. did have some musical instruction. Yeah, I had some. And to be honest, I couldn't really grasp any of it completely. I, I got the hang of it, but I didn't become a pro at any of that. I got the hang of it and I got the feel for it. But it really, and, and so that you made a great point there, Len, because taking those lessons and listening to music and collecting records, that was all pointing in the direction of production. You know, it and just got to realizing it yet, right? You didn't even right. and that's to tell people, explain that. You don't even, you know. You're, nope. you're so right. You're so the first so the first thing I started, you know, so I took lessons, started, I started collecting, had a good collection, listening to DJs, clubs, radio, and then you know, these 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 master mixes started to, to, to be, be very popular. This is talking about mid-80s or maybe early mid-80s, like the Big Apple mixes or the Hollywood mixes, where you would hear, oh, many tunes within the matter of 15 minutes or snippets of many tunes. And it was it was just bewildering on how that was being done to me because I didn't discover editing yet. I didn't discover editing yet then. And people like the Latin Rascals were on air, or, you know, you mentioned Tommy before was the dynamic duo, or um, there was Aldo Marin, there was uh, Jose Animal Diaz, uh, there was a guy on KTU named Mark Shoshone. I don't know if you remember him. Oh my God, I forgot about Mark Shoshone. Yeah, Mark Shoshone, right? And what about Ted Currier? There was... Um, Ted I talked to, nice guy. Yeah. Jelly Bean Benita, there was a guy named Preston Powell, I remember. I even heard... I have a tape of, of Hippie Torales on uh, KTU as well from 82. But there, there, yeah, there were so many. There was another guy I was going to mention. Uh, oh, Shep Pettibone, of course. Oh, yeah, Miss Shep. Shep's mix yeah. is legendary. Yeah. And well, then later on, Timmy and, and Boyd came on. You know, Timmy Register, Boyd Jarvis, and well, Tony Humphreys too. And anyway, it got me really interested in editing. And the Latin Rascals were just amazing at it. They were masters. I mean, the edits they would do were, wow. So when I was going to Center for Media Arts, I then discovered editing and, and what editing was and how it worked. And um, I got myself a tape machine and I started editing mixes. And What tape machine was that, Nick? Um, it was a task cam. I got a task cam. Actually, it was a four track. So I would overdub on the edits. It was a task cam 34B. It was quarter inch and it only went up to 15 IPS. Um, so I would do the edits and then overdub on the edits. So, you know, this is pointing in the, in the production direction. Now, then I finished media, Center for Media Arts, right? And uh, 
I'm going to find this article one day, Len, because I saved it. There was an article in Billboard shortly before I graduated, and it talked about Arthur giving new talent a chance. Arthur at Shakedown giving new talent a chance. You know, I think, you know, I think you're going to tell me? Tell me. From the movie Arthur, you know, uh, what Dudley Moore played. I was like thinking, I, was like, <laughs> I hope it's not that Arthur, is it Arthur Baker? Okay. Arthur Baker. Arthur Baker, that's right, yeah. So, yeah, in that in that article, it talked about how he's open to new talent. And it got me, you know, I was already a fan of his productions. Him and John Roby were doing great things all through the, through the early 80s. And uh, anyway, there was, a, there was a magazine that was out called Dance Music Report as well. Do you remember that? Sure I do. DMR. And, yeah, it was, it was a very small magazine, black and white, but it had, I, I loved it. It had all, you know. Information. A lot of information. It had a lot of information. It had a, and, and one day I'm looking through it and there was an ad for the Latin Rascals. So they're offering their services to others, you know. And on, on the ad, it had the number for Shakedown. So I called it. And who do you think answered? Arthur Baker. Tony Moran. Tony, okay, Tony Moran. Tony Moran answered. And uh, he was very friendly. And um, I just told him that I you know, was getting out of Center for Media Arts and I'd just like to come up there. And he was really friendly and just gave me tips, encouraged me. So now, I did everybody, Tony Moran's all over the radio people. He's hot with the Latin Rascals. Latin they, Rascals, right. Yeah, at the top of- records, he's talking to a superstar right now. He doesn't even really know. He's, he, you know, he's saying it's Tony Moran. But Tony Moran in those days, I mean, he's still a great DJ and everything. He makes great. But in 80s radio, Tony Moran and Albert Cabrera were making new Latin Rascals. Those edits were to die for. Everybody wanted them on everything, right? Vic Talent. It was like crazy. Definitely. You could, you oh, could li- just listen. Wow, you're yeah. old. Absolutely. You listen to them now. I mean, a lot of their mixes are up online and, you know, you just hear those edits and it's, remember they're doing this with tape. This is before computers. Just think about when you're listening to their edits, just think about how long that takes. And, you know, I, look, I, I know what it is to edit tape. So it's, it's, it's very time consuming. So anyway, um, I, I went up to Shakedown. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't see Tony when I first went up. Um, there was a, the manager was named Tim. Uh, it might have been, I think it's Tim Scott. I can't believe I remember that. Um, yeah, this is Tim Scott. So I went up and in, in I went up to I went up to uh for the interview and um you know because I, I read that article, so they were looking for interns, and he said, Well, no, we're not very interested now, we don't need anybody, but you know, you keep the number and 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 if anything comes up, we'll let you know. So I kept an I kept the number, believe me, I kept the number. I know you did. <laughs> <laughs> I kept <laughs> So I called every single... How often did you call them? Come on, tell us. I called them for March. I called them April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November. December came around. Christmas. December, Christmas. December came around. That's December 1987 came around. Right? And they said, yes, we need somebody. Can you come in tomorrow? I said, absolutely. I said, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I will be here. I will be. That was just a dream come true. No. I them every time. This is what I t- tried to explain to this generation. Yeah. You know, and that's, you know, you, you kept hearing the word no. What did you hear? Yes. I know you must have kept hearing. You said, get out of here. No, right? No. Uh, what? Hearing, hearing no? Well, you would hear, we don't need you. Oh, definitely. That's all you'd hear. And what would you say? So react the phone call. Like, if you call, hello, you know, yes. 
Oh, yeah, hello, hello. I'm just calling back, checking in to see if you need anybody. Could you use an intern? We don't intern? need nobody. We don't need anybody. No, 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 no. spoke back then. We don't need nobody. Who gave you the number, right? It tells you some crazy. You're like, you guys put the ad out months ago. That thing's over already. Why are you still calling it? You know, you get these idiots on the phone. Who are you again? I called last month. What's your name? Victor. Victor. No, it's all back then. We don't need anybody. Lose my number. Click. Right. Well, they were, a bit, they were a bit more polite than that, but you got the idea of the no. That's for sure. Yeah, Why are you calling again? Did huh? you last yeah. month? We told you don't call again. What did we tell you no? Which part of no did you not understand? Right? Yeah, well, you're going to like this. So when I finally got the yes, right, what do you think is going through my mind? Holy smoke. I don't believe this. I don't believe it. And what do you think? What do you think I'm thinking I'm going to do when, I'm get, when I get there? Right to work on the tape machine in the studio. Wow. Right. What you thought? That's a, listen, that's what we all thought. That's what we, the first thing we thought. What happened? Tell them what happened. <laughs> Tell them what happened. All right, right. look in the place. What happened? Right, I got there. I couldn't even barely get in the door. Arthur came down, and it was, wow, I just met... I mean, gosh, I'm the hugest fan of Arthur, you know, just doing everything. So Arthur comes down, front door, come on with me, we're going to move house. <laughs> what do you mean move house? What do you mean? Well, he was moving house. He was moving from 6th Avenue up to, uh, he was moving some of his furniture and belongings from 6th Avenue up to up to uh, Woodstock, which is upstate. So oh, we wow. had a, So we had a van. And, you know, we had to load the van, bring it all up there, and unload it. But that was my first internship day on the job. <laughs> I didn't even get to see the studio that day. But I got to spend time with Arthur. And, um, That's a good way to begin because you got to work with him. You get to know him. You got to work with him. You got to listen. It takes, it takes work, Len. All right, hang on a second. Take a, take a 